Thanks for listening to this Word in Your Ear podcast. If you'd like to get early access to all our productions ad-free, priority booking for our live events, and to take part in our weekly quiz, go to patreon.com slash wordinyourear for more details. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. You're listening to a podcast from The Word. Ah, oh, there we go. Good evening. And welcome to Word in Your Ear. And if you've been to these uh, in the past, you'll know that there's... Every, every time we do one, there's one small victory over technology, and then there's usually one small reverse, OK? <laughs> uh, and I have to say that the victory this time is we've actually managed to get the pictures from this iPad to that screen. When we did one of these with Simon Napier-Bell a few weeks ago... Yeah, thank you, thank you, thank you. We encourage audience participation from as early as possible. No, when we did it with Simon Napier Bell, it didn't work. And Dave passed, up the passed his um, iPad round the crowd so they could really hear, so he individually look at the pictures, which I thought he'd never see the iPad again. No, he did get the iPad. It was a remarkably honest crowd. But, you know, we've... Uh, and we do apologise if we look like members of Gary Newman's Tubeway Army with these, uh, <laughs> these things woven into our hair here at the side. But we say it's slightly less unsightly than having mic stands in front of us. Uh, the way things are going to work, we're, we're going we're to talk to Zoe in a moment about her book about Stevie Nicks, and then there's going to be a break when you can go and get drinks and so forth, and then we're going to return with Ben Watt and uh, in, a, in, a, in a naked bid uh, to, to uh, ingratiate ourselves with the audience, what we're going to do is we start early and we finish early. Is that popular? So, is there... so Dave Hepworth could be looking at the inside of his lids Absolutely. by that Absolutely. <laughs> no shame in that. No shame in that at all. It's, 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 the early, it's the early evening out. OK, so over to you, Mark. Very Well, I'm going to say, as Dave says, we've got two authors uh, tonight, and the first is someone I met recently at Cornbury Festival, uh, where we were both trying to tempt the uh, rather posh crowd <laughs> away from the Sophie Ellis-Bexter show on the main stage, and more to the point, the Pim's double-decker bus <laughs> to the literary tent. And it, we, we succeeded. Now, she's here to talk about her latest biography, which is Stevie Nicks, Visions, Dreams and Rumours. Here it is, and I think it's for sale later, I hope so. So please give a very warm, um, the Islington pub-style welcome to Zoe Howe. <laughs> Fantastic. Here we are. <laughs> so I was going to start by... Uh, there's the book. There's the book. By just saying, you've written, I mean, an enormous number of books. You've written one about Wilker Johnson, you've written one about Slits, uh, Jesus and Mary Chain, I think Florence yeah. and the Machine. Is there anything... 
that these things have in common, obviously apart from, from cash. <laughs> is there a kind of mythology or an interesting music or just fascinating stories that uh, they well, have something I think, in common? Um, I've always got to be interested in the music. I, I, I think if you're going to spend, you know, a best co- part of a couple of years of your life writing about someone and immersing yourself in their music and everything they did and everything that's, that they're about, you've got to kind of love them a bit and... Um, you know, so obviously all of those people were people I was interested in. But I think also one of the reasons I really wanted to write about, you know, the Slits, Wilco, uh, the Mary Chain and, and Stevie is that they were all people who I thought were very, very creative spirits in very different ways, very uncompromising. And in different ways, I felt like there were certain elements of who they were that maybe hadn't been given their due. And people might think that's ridiculous as Stevie Nicks is a massive star. But, you know, I think there's always a temptation to see rock stars in a very one-dimensional way. And there's something really great about that too. I mean, it's very theatrical rock yeah, and roll theatre. Yeah, we've never theater, done that, you know, but... Never, no, Lord, no. <laughs> But I just, you know, I like to kind of like pick up the stone and look underneath it and see what, what's crawling so, around. So when there. you're writing these books, and, you know, Stevie Nicks, and it, it might take two years, is it two years? Well, it'd take a long time anyway. Yeah. Do you go into total Stevie Nicks immersion mode? Do you just listen to her music all the time or yeah. doesn't it drive you mad I mean well, anybody's music. I'm a bit no, mad I mean, anyway so it doesn't make too much difference <laughs> it's slightly insane as it goes but, <laughs> but what was quite interesting with the, the Stevie Nicks book is that I was listening to a lot of Fleetwood Mac lots of Stevie Nicks but I was also finishing the Jesus and Mary Chain book at the same time so I was sort of immersed sort of half in Stevie what Nicks terrible collision and half everything. Mary Chain and so it was quite an interesting kind of musical mix in my, in my home at the time so that was quite, quite strange but yeah wh- one of the challenges nowadays writing any kind of music book is there's so much information nowadays isn't it yes there's just more of it than ever before you know there's there's youtube there's everybody's got 10 autobiographies or you know kiss and tells or whatever you read everything yeah there's so much there's so much information which is great in one way and, and, and in another way it's sort of trying to discern what's real and what's not and you know get get beneath the myths and all the rest of it but i was quite surprised that no one had actually really kind of done a kind of really I suppose, a comprehensive look at Stevie Nicks before. Oh, right. You know, there are fan books and Fleetwood Mac books, of course, and they're really great, you know, but I think it was... This is, yeah, the first time that someone's sort of done it. So, uh, she's such a complicated... Actually, she's put up the first picture, because isn't one of her at school? Come on, where have we got... Yes, isn't there that great? Is. Mary Wilson and the Wilson. <laughs> <laughs> That's right, yeah. Is that, is that, is that a beehive? Is that a, beehive? a sort of back coat. It is a beehive, say, isn't it? Yes, definitely approaching beehivedom. But she's, it's so fascinating. I mean, the end, well, we'll get to the end and how complicated she is then, but she's kind of complicated at the beginning because she's constantly talking about these, um, what's the word she uses? Crystal visions. Yes. Which you keep referring to. It's so funny. So she's the, as you might imagine, the archetypal hippie, this girl, floating around. Um, and you can't imagine that she's ever going to have enough drive and focus to propel herself onto, onto the stage. So how, how, what drove her, do you think? She's such a kind of fabulous star child. That's what really what made point. her do it? Yeah, because she's very dreamy and she's obviously a dreamer and, you know, a lot of her, um, her childhood was spent sort of in her room just dreaming and reading fairy, st- fairy stories and kind of, you know, doing ballet and trying to be kind of Louis, Louis Fuller with all the kind of, you know, so that was there from the very beginning. Um, but I think, you know, once she hit her 16th birthday and she was allowed to take guitar lessons and she was very into music anyway and she wrote her first song. And she thought, this is what I want to do. It just came very naturally. And she had a real kind of emotional response just to the, the process of writing a song. So I think she just wanted to do that so much. And I think in a way, she's quite lucky in a way. When You're quite lucky if there's one thing you want to do from that age. Nothing else will get in the way. She became completely single-minded about it. And that's just what she wanted to do. And so she just took every opportunity she could to sing, whether it was assemblies or 
kind of church groups. That's where she first met Lindsay Buckingham, was at kind of church groups. So she groups. pushed herself to the front yeah, she in everything. Yeah, absolutely went for it. She's a stage school kid, kind of thing. <laughs> you know? I mean, not without going to without stage school. Without going to stage school, no, absolutely. Yeah, definitely. And also brilliantly kind of... Um, Unaffected by criticism, there's a wonderful description where she's doing a Buffy St. Marie song called Cody, yeah. and she's oh, sort of yes. enacting this terrible withdrawal on the stage, <laughs> crawling on. And the rest of the band are really embarrassed, aren't they? You know, yes. Taking the piss out of her, but she just rose above it and thought. And you can see later on in Fleetwood Mac that all that floating around and the ethereal clothes and stuff was what she really wanted to do and believed was, was going to pay off. Yeah, and it was absolutely there from such an early point. And yes, as you say, she was kind of, you know, made herself immune to, you know, the rest of the band who were probably a little bit more conventional and I think most people are more conventional than Stevie Nicks, to be fair. But... So is that something you've found in common, you know, writing about a load of different people, that they are kind of embarrass-proof from an early age, these people? Maybe. That or they, they will just... They don't care if people are sniggering at them. They I believe think, in what they're doing. Yeah, I think, or at least they learn to be embarrassed-proof. And I think in, 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 in a lot of these cases, like, for example, with the Mary Chain, with the Reeds, you know, and Douglas Hart, they were felt very isolated where they were. There was no-one really like them. Um, and there, there was no-one who kind of shared their creative reference points or anything like that. So it was like, well, who cares? Let's just do what we want. Because no-one's going to understand us, so we may as well just do what we want. And I think it was probably the same with Stevie. So where is this? Where is she brought up? Where did she come from? Well, that's the interesting thing. She was born in Phoenix, Arizona, um, but she had this kind of peripatetic childhood. Um, her dad moved... You know, they moved around a lot because of her dad's work, which I think is another element into why maybe she's sort of confident and thought, well, who cares? Let's just do this. Because she never really had a chance to get particularly ensconced in any particular school. You know, she started to settle in, then they moved somewhere else and stuff. So it was like, you know, there was no point in sort of trying to be liked, I suppose. Right, right. Just sort of do so, your own thing. So, but anyway, to move forward, she, she ends up in, in Los Angeles... Yes. In, so when's this? 1975 or something like, like that? Punk never happened. I think it was, yeah. <laughs> Actually, it hadn't happened, to be fair. Oh, Stevie, she really regrets this And this, uh, is a, this, this was a very controversial well. picture, wasn't it? In the book, it's, she didn't, she, she's made to take her clothes off. Yes, and this was, this was like a real learning curve for Stevie. Don't take your clothes. Don't take, yes. yeah, well, exactly, because she didn't want to. And she'd, she was very excited about doing this, uh, this album cover. And she bought it, she'd like spent all her money on this beautiful blouse. And she was like, this is what I'm going to wear and stuff. And, and so, you know, photo shoot happens and they take the picture and they go right now's Kitchen. now take off your blouse and she's like and she kind different of different times she, yeah <laughs> and she sort of <laughs> to be fair they said the same to Lindsay <laughs> well yes yeah. yeah, that's true yeah, did exactly. did it, did it, did it. it's topless <laughs> Lindsay Buckingham no problem I know <laughs> but she was so upset and um, you know that was the point at which she thought right that's it I'm um, I'm going to be sexy but I'm going to be sexy under 20 pounds of chiffon and no one's going to you know I'm not going to ever sort of flash the flesh again and I think that's one of the reasons why a lot of girls love Stevie Nicks one of the many reasons a lot of girls love Stevie Nicks is that she never kind of felt that she had to kind of pander to the male gaze in that way you know obviously she's very sexy but she was never kind of over sexualized I suppose right 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 so what's the setup here I mean they, they, they've, they're trying to make it in Los Angeles is this boyfriend and girlfriend at the same time, are they? Yeah, they, they'd just become boyfriend and girlfriend. They were in a, a sort of high school band together called Fritz. Oh, yeah, where uh, Jimi Hendrix de- dedicates a song to it, doesn't it? Don't they yes, support Jimi Hendrix? That's right, yeah, they do. he says, yeah, this is do. for the beautiful girl on the side of the stage. So that's the, obviously the <laughs> Not impact Lindsay. she had. Not Lindsay, no. <laughs> you know, get your shirt back on. Yeah, <laughs> yeah they, this band, you know, it's called the Fritz Rubin Memorial Band, and it was, uh, it was named after one Catching. of their uh, schoolmates, uh, who actually was still alive, and I think quite embarrassed. <laughs> you know, it was right rather upset about that thing so it got shortened to Fritz and they were kind of in the right place at the right time because at the time they were in um, San Francisco 
And uh, so, of course, they got to support these incredible people like Janice Joplin and Jefferson Airplane and Jimmy and, you know, all these amazing people that she sort of soaked up all the influences, not just from the people on stage, but also from the people in the audience as well. She was looking at what they were wearing and just all these interesting people around her. So that kind of sparked a lot of, you know, her sartorial kind of influences, I suppose. But then they were spotted by a producer called Keith Olsen, who's who very kindly spoke to me for the book and was absolutely great. And uh, he said, you know, they're great, but they need to be a duo. You know, these two are special, Lindsay and Stevie. There's something about, there's something that kind of comes to life when they sing together. And, you know, cutting a long story short, they moved to LA, the rest of the band stayed in San Francisco and they tried to make it as a duo. This is a fantastic uh, meeting, isn't it? Because as far as I can see, Fleetwood Mac are a kind of really successful but flagging band Mm. who've lost their singer as well and Buckingham Nicks are kind of unsuccessful band with a load of songs needing arrangers isn't that right it is the most extraordinary it's incredible so Fleetwood Mac is that right it's got to really arrange these Buckingham Nicks songs and turn them into an incredible you know multi-million selling yeah, kind of franchise. absolutely. And I think Lindsay kind of steamed in as well because he had lots of ideas just as a producer as well. He's a kind of natural producer, Lindsay Buckingham. So I think, I think it probably took a bit of a while for him to find his feet because I think, you know, he was sort of starting to boss them around a bit and John McBee's going, hang on a minute, you're talking to McBee here, you know, you're bossing me around. I've, you know, I've been around the block a few times. So I think that kind of took a while to settle. But yeah, they, had, they were kind of ready-made. But I think it was an amazing thing because really they were also looking for a new guitarist. And... Uh, he, um, Mick Fleetwood was also shopping for a studio and he went to Sound City, which is where um, Buckingham Nicks made their album. And Keith Olsen was there and he was showing Mick Fleetwood around and uh, he said, well, you know, listen to this. You know, this, you get a sense of the sound. And, he, and the tape that he put in was Buckingham Nicks. And Mick Fleetwood kind of thought, you know, that's a great guitarist. You know, I wonder if he'd like to join Fleetwood Mac. And Keith Olsen said, well, if you're going to take Lindsay, you've got yes, to take Stevie. They're a duo. Yeah. So he said, OK, <laughs> which is amazing because it completely changed the whole course of everything, you know, musically, everything. Kind of an amazing leap of faith, really, in a way. So, and, and extraordinarily, you know, just a few years later, they, Mick Fleetwood and, and Stevie Nicks end up on the cover of... The, the record that ate the record business, you yeah, know, that, yeah. that had sold however many, 20 million copies or whatever. <laughs> it's insane. How, why, how, why were the two of them on the cover of that album, not the whole group? Well, it was supposed to be a kind of reflection of the preceding album, Fleetwood Mac, which had John McVie and Mick Fleetwood. So it's kind of like a kind of answer to that in a way but it, I don't think it went down massively well I think Lindsay would have quite liked to have been on the cover because sure. they're on the back but you know so there's it was I think Mick Fleetwood kind of had a real thing where he wanted the covers to be like a piece of art and and for it to be a kind of response to the Fleetwood Mac cover that preceded it so they they kind of did that here but it's iconic well you get the impression that, that, that Lindsay it starts to get really put out because he's his girlfriend has now become the star of the group, mm. and he's the kind of second or third star, and it's not even his group, <laughs> and so he isn't he? He's really quite resentful. That yes, that yeah. Life becomes complicated. It absolutely does, and uh, you know, especially kind of on stage. You know, Stevie is getting a huge amount of attention. She's swirling around. She's incredibly charismatic. She's got this amazing presence, incredible voice, and and uh, as does Lindsay. But you know, he's starting to kind of so there's, there's this kind of rivalry between the two. You know, two lovers in a way that it could only. There's rivalry at every level of that. Of have that we got group, a picture of the of the what I'm calling the Love Pentagon? Well, I think we have. I can't, I think we have. <laughs> here it go. is. Here it is. Fantastic. There you go. One of the great it's magazines. Just a great picture, um, isn't it? Um, now, can you run through yeah, in as much detail as you can cope with? Basically, who slept with who? That's what David wants to know. Well, yeah. <laughs> that's a good question. <laughs> Very well put. Well. <laughs> 
So these two, definitely. Mick and... Mick and, Mick, Mick and Stevie. Mick and Stevie. Mick and Stevie. But then we have Christine McVie and John McVie. Married. Who were married. Who were married. I think by this point it was kind of all over. Lindsay and Christine, there was a bit of a rumour about, but it's, oh. it was never been uh, confirmed. I think people like to think that just everybody was sleeping with everybody, but I think it was mainly kind of Stevie was at the epicentre of all the, uh, the kind of the love. Um, <laughs> but they were kind of mortified when they had, mortified when they had to do this cover. Annie Leibovitz took the cover and it was her concept, right, we're going to have a massive bed and you're all, ba- you know, she basically got Fleetwood Mac to get into bed with each other. And, uh, and Thoroughly good idea. Amazing ideas, it was brilliant. But, I, um, but they weren't also that Christine had gone off with the lighting director at this time. Is he, right? is he in the and bed? And Mick's wife, who's... Jenny, he's not, he's under the bed. <laughs> oh, he's lighting the bed. <laughs> yeah. And Mick's wife, Jenny Boyd, right, sister of Patty Boyd, I think had gone off with Bob... What was his name? Bob Weston, who was the guitar player at the time? Yes, oh, well, yes, yes. I, I think, think so. Yeah. So it's yeah, even yeah. more complicated. It's unbelievable. Oh, um, absolutely Because unbelievable, this was yeah. the time, and when, when we're talking about here, 76, 77, maybe a bit later... Uh, when it was kind of considered impolite not to sleep with people. <laughs> oh, no, that never happened to me. I'm serious. I'd have lived my life all over again. <laughs> Seriously, you know, that if you were kind of chummy, you know, it was kind of it wasn't a big thing, was it? Well, I suppose yeah, seventies is another, How would another you time. Know, you know, so, <laughs> um, but you know, they became just a soap opera, didn't they? Yes, yeah. Did that add to their appeal to fans, do you think? I think it definitely did, and I think it continues to this day. I think, you know, I remember seeing the... Fleetwood Mac special on MTV in 1997, which was the first time they played together for 15 years, and it was this very special moment, very tense, you know, and one of the most incredible things, and I remember seeing it on TV, was just the chemistry that was still there between Lindsay and Stevie, and obviously the chemistry between everybody else as well, but it was such an amazing thing, and, and, and I think they cottoned on to the fact that everyone was just so blown away by the fact that they were singing these songs that they'd written for each other, to each other, after all these years, and there was obviously still this incredible electricity... I think they kind of play on that a bit now. But I think to this day, everyone still loves that, uh, as you say, the love Pentagon. I think people still fantasise that they'll get back together as well. So it's all the stuff that, you know, all the stuff that the band said was uh, we shouldn't be bothered about. We are bothered about. You know what I mean? They said, you should listen to the songs. You shouldn't take any interest in our lives. We do take an interest in our lives, don't we? How can we not? But then they're not complaining about it, are they? Well, because you say that's part of the attraction. I think it is. I think they, they, they cottoned onto that a while ago and thought, you know, let's just go for it. And it's become very theatrical now. I think they kind of lay, lay the whole psychodrama on very thickly on stage. But, but you know, we all love I, it. I think and... you're absolutely right. If you watch bits of footage of them, there's these kind of very theatrical looks at mm, each other where they're the singing daggers. songs they wrote about each other. Yeah. And there's just tremors going through the audience, you know. Yes. But it's very staged, I think. Did Mick Fleetwood and John McVie ever exchange meaningful <laughs> that, that really would confuse the... It could have been a night in a boarding house in... It could have been. Well, we're, let's, let's, say let's say the was. Let's say the was, because it's much better, isn't it? <laughs> Also, the other thing, I, one of us is sitting on a microphone. The other thing is, it's terribly boring to talk about drugs, but it's hilarious reading your book about the sheer quantity of drugs they take. And at one point, they just, they, uh, somebody kind of brings a load of angel dust or something into the <laughs> studio. These studios must have cost about, well, I don't know, what, $10,000 a day or something? Yeah. And they all take a load of angel dust because I don't think they really know what it is. And they all have to take the day off. The engineers are sent <laughs> home early. Yes. The engineers are going great because they get the rest of the day off, you know. And then the next day they come in there and they get so stoned. I think it just, it finishes up with John and, is it Stevie? sitting out reading a copy of Playboy magazine yes, just and just gi- giggling. Giggling in a corner. Again, the yeah. clock ticking. You know. <laughs> yeah, no work done. So yeah. 14 months, weren't they, making rumours? Yes, And yeah. they were pretty much there all the time. 
Absolutely. I mean, when you think, you know, an album can technically be made in a week or, you know, in a day, you know, even, so it's, it's kind of in, in, insane. But yeah, it's a long time to be hothoused together, I suppose, and the boundaries got very confused. <laughs> so so here's, here she is stepping out on her own, you know, yes. stepping out, I use the expression stepping out advisedly to, uh, you know, indicate the, ex- what's going on with the footwear state? <laughs> Gargoresque. <laughs> <laughs> well, there are lots of levels as to why she kind of went for the uh, the, the, the slightly ridiculous platforms. I mean, one of them is because she is five foot one, and Gosh, she felt yeah. she needed that's to be kind seen. Of an kite, isn't yes, it? absolutely minute. When you're yeah. on stage with people, someone like Mick Fleetwood, who's about. The Carly's 5'1". I don't know why I, I know this. It's thing. the same. <laughs> Prince is 5'1", too. She's, she's See, if you put Prince and Carly together, put a ruler on the top, you're exactly level. <laughs> wouldn't, glass of water wouldn't spill. <laughs> No, she is, I mean, that is enormous, though, isn't it? They, really? they, yes, she sort of became obsessed with platforms and she kind of got this whole collection. She's got thousands of pairs of platforms and that became part of her look. So, you know, she wanted to be seen. She wanted to make a statement on stage, surrounded by all these people she wanted to sort of be seen for, you know, for who she was. And, and I think that's why she's got the voluminous sort of diaphanous robes as well. They move and it makes her a sort of bigger person. But also, uh, you know, I think um, she sort of very wisely, I think uh, we could all learn something from this, is that she chose what kind of suited her and stuck with it, and that became right. her uniform. She said, that this is my uniform. I've got my platforms. I've got my chiffon. Most of the time she wears black. You know, that was kind of, kind of an exception, I think. But, um, you know, that, that was her uniform, and it is to this day. She knows what works for her, and she just sticks to it. It doesn't matter what's fashionable. That's just her. And the bird? And the bird, the bird belonged to her brother, I think. Um, the bird did definitely belong to her brother. And I think it's just a sort of symbol, really, of... Uh, well, she, she, loves, she loves the idea of things in flight and the body in flight. Or can, you know, she's very mercurial. Um, and I think, you know, some of that comes from her love of ballet and, you know, some of that comes from, you know, the kind of witchy thing, you know, the, the bird in flight and sort of Rhiannon and all the rest of it. So, and the white-winged dove, you know, obviously I know that's not a, a dove, but, uh, you know, it became a sort of symbol for her and maybe a symbol of freedom from Fleetwood Mac in a way. Right. Now, so, but, so apart from the affairs within Fleetwood Mac, there were also affairs with other musicians. Yes. Most of the Eagles. Well, there's Joe, Joe, Joe Walsh, Don Henley, there's a lot of Jimmy Ivey. Maybe, that, maybe that's what the birds. A lot like. of Eagles. Yes, maybe. Yeah, but I, I suppose I was well, going to Bernie. Take, taking that theme, I was going to ask a question. But at the end of the book, I. I just felt so terribly sorry for her, actually, because she's had these affairs. Don Henley didn't work out. Jimmy Ivey, as you say, um, it was Joe Walsh, etc. Yeah. So all these really complicated love affairs. She has addicted herself to drugs in, in a really rather catastrophic way and has to be um, sorted out in that regard. You think, can life get any worse? And she wakes up one morning feeling absolutely shocking, and it's because a breast implant from 1976 has gone wrong. Am I, am I right? Yeah. And I just think, honestly, would you really want to be Stevie Nicks, you know, as this, I mean, with all the marvellous amounts of money she's made? And so, I mean, did you feel at the end of it that you felt some kind of sympathy for the predicament she was in? Or? Absolutely, yeah. It was just sort of one thing after another. And she was living this really kind of intense life I suppose of extremes, and uh, you know, I think I think that's one of the things that really. When I finished the book, I thought, you know, I just thought this is a survivor. You know, this is a rock and roll survivor. Such intense experience, so many kind of dreadful relationships. And I think one of the things about Stevie Nicks is she's really heart led. You know, for, for you know, she's quite sort of crazy and ridiculous in some ways, and completely over the top, and you know, all the rest of it. But she's very heart led, and she throws every her heart into everything, whether it's her creativity or her relationships. And it kind of just left her open to being talking of which exploited. Yes, yeah, the disastrous, very short marriage. Who's um, that? I don't even recognise that, that guy. Who's that? He's a record executive. He, he was called Kim Anderson. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. He, 
uh, was the widow of Robin Snyder Anderson, who was... Her best friend. Best yeah. friend. And um, Stevie was absolutely devoted to Robin. Um, she went to school with her, knew her from her teens, and she insisted on her being on tour with her all the time. She sort of had her there as a voice coach. And, you know, every, she was... Female friendships are very important to Stevie, but Robin was absolutely the one. And very sadly, she was diagnosed with leukaemia and, and, and died just after having a baby. And Stevie was pretty kind of out of her tree at the time anyway. Um, Doesn't look into that well. picture, I have to say. <laughs> never know. To be fair. Yeah, to be, she's hiding it really <laughs> she's well. She's really keeping she's that under control, it. I think. Yeah. <laughs> but anyway, moving on. Yeah. <laughs> Anyone who can walk in their shoes whilst in that state deserves that Is she respect, walking or is she just standing on one leg? I don't so know. She married, <laughs> she married him. So she married... The widow, and sorry, the widower, because um, she said, well, someone's got to look after this baby, and, you know, I guess it should be me. She was like a kind of quasi kind of godmother, I guess. And they got together, and it was incredibly ill-advised and didn't last very long. How long just did that was, last? Oh, a matter of months. And it was only a matter of months after Robin had died, so... Uh, yeah, pretty so is disastrous. it a cry for help or a cry for attention, or is it a bit of both? Well, I think lots of people got, kind of got their opinions about why she did that. I, I genuinely think she did it for the, you know, what she saw as the right reasons, although in a kind of very misguided, kind of druggy way. I think she, she genuinely wanted to care for the child and, and try and help. I think it was genuinely that, but it, it, it got very, very screwed up. And, now, uh, we've got another wedding picture involving Stevie Nicks here, <laughs> uh, which is even more amazing. Oh, God, yes. Stevie will perform your wedding. This is fantastic. She marries people. Yes, she? yes, she, she is an officiant, I believe the <laughs> yeah. phrase is. So if anybody's getting married, you know, Stevie But presumably is... she'll only marry you on a, on a beach or a, in, a, in a kind of woodland. <laughs> Somewhere in, yeah, the Hollywood Hills or something <laughs> exactly. like that. Absolutely. But she is, you know, technically a, a celebrant. Um, and she was made she, an, an officiant by the uh, Universal Church of Life, I believe, the, uh, in California. Oh, yes, absolutely, yeah. yes. That stands uh, up in they court. Don't, they, don't, they don't ordain their ministers <laughs> in the usual Jackson. way. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think you have to jump through quite so many hoops right, to become right, uh, right. an ordained minister, but uh, that's what happened. That's Vanessa Carlton, the uh, singer-songwriter there, who's very oh, really? devoted to Stevie. Extraordinary. Yes. Yeah, one of uh, Stevie's many protégés. Uh, we'll put her. We'll put her uh, website on the on the on the on the website. So if anybody thinking of getting married, <laughs> getting married. Uh, exactly, Stevie Stevie can can perform. But so here she is, the present day. Yes. Still with Fleetwood Mac. Yes. There they are. I mean, how old is she now? Oh, she's sixty-six now. Yeah. She's sixty-six. Yeah. So, so members of Fleetwood Mac are clearly in their seventies. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I think Christine Christine is. Yeah. Yeah. Must be in the seventies. Why are they still doing? Well, well, I think apart from the kind of the obvious, uh, you know, the possible sort of, you know, the tax bill answer, I think, it, you know, it's got to be that... I think they're like a kind of weird family. I think all bands are like weird families. I think Fleetwood Mac probably more than most. And, um, you know, I think there was a sense that they could never really get away from each other. And there were times throughout her career where she thought, I don't need Fleetwood Mac, I'm doing perfectly well on my own, which she was. And, uh, and there were times where she had long breaks and said, I will never play with... I'll never, play, I'll never be on stage with Mick Fleetwood again. You know, and it's just all these kind of hell freezes over kind of stories that they just can't seem to stay away from each other. But it's kind of true of all bands, isn't it? Yeah. You know, really, it, it, just, they all just can't leave it alone. Why should they, really? Because you're married I mean, to a musician. You know, is this, in your experience, what bands are like? Well, yeah, it's a kind of So weird... his husband is the tremendous Dylan Howe, by the way, who's <laughs> the drummer for Wilco Johnson. Yes, yeah. And he's also, the, the, in fact, I have to say, the, the son of Steve Howe of Yes, 
which I'm sure will be. Look at that. You see, people look at that. See, see Wilco Johnson, absolute silence. You start talking about, you know, a prog audience. roundabout on Yes, track one, the place goes mental. It's amazing. You're in, op- you're in a position to observe. You know the, the pulls of these these kind of things on bands, old and new. Is that is that yeah, your observation? Definitely, you, you pull back. become completely like family. You really, really do. And because I suppose you're, you're sort of spending more time with these people than you are with your family. You know, in, in many cases, or you become family because you, know, you have relationships with those people, and then it kind of gets gets sticky. But you can never really kind of you know. There's, there's something very magical, I think, of a sort of you know. So even if, of... if even if they're apparently a dagger's draw, mm. they're still they'd rather deal with each other. In many ways, than anybody else. in many cases, because yeah. they know, you know, they know where the bodies are buried. <laughs> yeah, I think that's part of it. Say, yeah. Definitely, but it also reminds me of because um, in the film Oil City Confidential, which any feel-good fans may may know. Um, the drummer, Big Figure, said, you know, we were in love with each other. Yeah. Which is a really unusual... It's not what I expected someone like Big Figure to say about these kind of Essex geezers who look a bit like the Blues Brothers. But it's like we were in love with each other. And I thought, yeah. I mean, they, and they were, they were like family, absolutely. Really kind of there's troubled a really at times. Sorry, but, there, there's a really hmm. good film about status quo where Francis Rossi says about um, Rick Parfit. Rick Parfit. says, I can't help it. I love him. <laughs> Which is so on Francis Ross. It's some measure of how, <laughs> exactly like of how you know, wedded they are to each other. You but know, you could also argue it. that if you've got a choice between you know, sitting in an enormous palatial suite in the Chateau Marmont watching you know, reruns of Friends or going on stage to hear 60,000 people go mental when you play the first chord <laughs> of Rihanna, you'd think, well, I'd probably do the latter, actually. Well, a lot I think more fun. Definitely. And I think you're also dealing with lots of people who've got addictive personalities, and I think you get addicted to the, addicted to the sound of a crowd who love you, you know, addicted to the sight of that, addicted to going on stage, you know, that's all part of it as well. And those people are completely woven into that experience as well. Completely. So there's the book. There it is. What's your next one? (laughs) The next one is quite a departure from Stevie, but it's, uh, it's about Lee Brillo. Um, oh, yes. excellent! Yeah, <laughs> tremendous. What a good idea. Lee Brillo fans in. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. He's not I thought... quite as colourful. Not well. He's no. pretty. He's, he's. I think there's, there's lots of things about Lee Brillo that are really interesting. That nobody. Again, it's that one D thing. We see him as this kind of wolfish, kind of sort of stoic, kind of uh, tough guy on stage. He's quite scary and, and menacing. But he's, he's got all these kind of different layers. And um, again, I just thought, you know, people need to know about this. And right. obviously, he's not here. But you know, I, I, I'm just going to do my best. One of my favourite <laughs> things about Lee Brillo, if you watch it. YouTube of them as you see Dr. Feelgood in about 1975 and Lee Brillo used to wear a white suit didn't he and his whole act was to you know, play the old mouth up and they just pretty much roll around on the floor which is usually covered with this is the mid 70s it'd be pork pies spilt pints of bitter <laughs> ashtrays you know so by the end of the other way he chose a white suit yeah. you know? so he looks shocking by the really end. Dry, about that. the dry cleaning bills no wonder they didn't make any money oh, yeah. I know so we thank you so much for coming on that was thank a lot you. of fun and uh, please give her an extremely warm welcome thank you this podcast was brought to you by the word mom deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for mother's day than whole foods market they're your destination for unbeatable savings from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even on a budget? 
Quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.